Well, this is the last of our series in the book of Colossians. So we've been trying to be more didactic lately in our messages all summer long. Summer in the scriptures, we've been giving you uh, a guide. We gave you a guide to read through Colossians, sometimes one or two verses a day, sometimes uh, three or four or a handful, never real uh, ominous. But if you followed that and did the reading plan, then you read through the book of Colossians during the summer, maybe several times over. And then each of these times that we've come on Sunday morning during the summer in the Scriptures series, we've taken a little bit of that book and parsed a little bit of it out and given you some tidbits about Bible study and context for Scripture. And we're going to do that again today. But this is, we finished this this Sunday. And next Sunday, Ben's, Pastor Ben's going to preach the uh, the, the one, the author of The Weird Experiences is going to preach uh, a, uh, a, a message on how to approach people you don't know the first Sunday they're here in the lobby and get them to join a small group. Yeah. <laughs> Yay! Uh, he'll be launching us into a new series. So this is Colossians 4 today. And I'm reading Colossians 4, getting ready for this message and really enjoying it. You know, Colossians is the book that when I was... Uh, college age, and I became a Christian at age 20. And I went to a, what was then a mega church. There weren't that many of them, this couple thousand people, but in Los Gatos, called Los Gatos Christian Church. And some of the students in the student union at the college where I was going to West Valley College down in Saratoga, and some of the students saw me sitting by myself and came over and said, hey, you know, do you want to hang out with us? And there were four or five really cute girls, and I'd been thinking, I would like to hang out with you. Yes, ma'am. And uh, walked over there, and they did a bait and switch on me. They told me about Jesus, who was, who was not a cute girl. And I found, I found the Lord. I was already ready to go, man. I was hungry. And so I got into this college career group where there were hundreds of people my age who were seeking to follow Christ, built all kinds of great relationships, and it was pretty exciting. And Eventually, one of them came to me and said, hey, Art, we've kind of got our eye on you. We've got a thing going with the, um, our, our Bible study groups. Would you like to lead a discussion group? What? Would you like to lead a discussion group, the book of Colossians? So Colossians was my f- first invitation to get into the Bible and, and talk about it. I knew nothing. I had to look at the table of context like many of us do when we get to some of those books. You know, I couldn't just thumb through there and find it because I didn't know the order. But it was my first engagement with Scripture, especially as a teacher. So it's a joy for, us to, for me, for us to have spent this summer in it. I've remembered some of those fond thoughts and apologized to God for some of the things I taught back then and uh, asked people about. But we're in the last chapter now, Colossians 4. And what I want to do today in the 30 minutes or so that we have remaining is discover some things together. I've gone and looked and I thought, man, I've, there's some cool questions in Colossians 4. And there are a couple of poignant mandates in Colossians chapter 4 that I think are relevant for us today. No surprise, it's the Word of God. It's relevant there are mandates, there are questions, it's perplexing, it makes you dizzy, it brings you peace. What's that old, old saying that many of you have probably heard? Maybe it's so old that most of us haven't heard it, but somebody, some famous theologian said, the Bible is a, uh, a, river, a river that a lamb can walk in and an elephant can drown in, the same river. It's as deep 
It's so deep you can never keep up with it, but it's clear enough for the most calm, brand new believer to find something there that challenges their life. And we're going to experience a little bit of each, I hope, uh, today. Beginning with some questions and then looking at a couple of commands or mandates that are designed to help us do this Christianity thing and do church um, really well. Here's something that's a presupposition for me. And I hope that it's a presupposition for you as you spend time in the scriptures, even after the summer. Questions and questioning what the Bible teaches or what it seems like the Bible teaches is not something we should be nervous about or reluctant to do. Questions are good. It's always good to have the Bible open here and a notepad open here, and when you read something that makes no sense or that is a little bit, makes your knees shake a little bit, write down the question, write it down, and go, go study it further later on. And there are a couple of questions in reading Colossians uh, that come up, and we're going to jump on a few of them, and I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. So Colossians chapter 4, I see it basically divided into two sections. If you take a Bible out from underneath the seat in front of you and turn to page 1090, you'll be in the same page I'm on in the same translation of Scripture. <coughs> and you have, well, this is coming off of the, remember Jeff has been teaching us this is always a context. There's always an historical, con Pastor Jeff, there's always an historical context. Pastor Ben has reminded us of, the, us of that when he's preached as well. There's a context. I've got some water, Todd. I do already, thanks brother. Really, I knew what you were doing though, cause you're such a kind, <laughs> kind man, thank you. <clears throat> thank you brother. Uh, so we're coming off of that context where Jeff taught last Sunday about uh, authority and covering and submission to each other. Jeff taught about mutual submission. He talked in the context of marriage, but this is about relationships not just the relationship of marriage. And then coming right off of that, Paul gives a couple of mandates that he's saying, look, this will help you if you live like this. And you'll help me if you live like this. And that goes down through verse six. Then beginning in verse seven, where it says final greetings, you've got a whole bunch of names that are very difficult to understand. I used to, I used to be afraid when I was a little kid and we were going to church and the Sunday school teacher would say, uh, young Mr. Greco, will you stand up please and read, beginning at verse seven, and you'd quickly look, if you were in church as a kid, you know this, you'd quickly look to see how many of those spacey names were in there that you couldn't pronounce. And you'd stumble over those, or the names of towns, right? And you'd kind of rub your mouth when you say them. And this is several verses of that. But that section is, here's who's with me, this person's with me, so-and-so greets you, it's like when your family comes and you're writing a letter after they, after they came and you're writing a letter to somebody that wasn't there. Hey, Aunt Mary was here and she says hi and cousin Jenny was here and he's, we have nephew Joel and his wife Hannah and her sister here with us uh, uh, for a couple days and I could write to David, our son down in LA. Hey, Joel and Hannah were here and they said to say hi to you and that's what this is and some other things in there. It's in that second section, that greeting section that I'm not gonna read that I find a lot of the really interesting and potentially scary faith-shaking questions. In seminary, uh, we had a class that everybody had to take 
called, uh, it was for critical problems in the, in the text. And it was basically about how did we get our Bible? And that was when I realized, oh man, the thing didn't just fall out of heaven. We got it this way. There was this council and they reasoned and they thought this letter should be included and this one shouldn't. And some thought Hebrews shouldn't even be in the Bible because the, all these theologians coming together, reasoning together and arguing for what should be in what's called the canon, the official Bible. What is the word of God and what is not reliable as the word of God, but maybe it helps us understand the word of God. And the whole thing started to get really shaky for me. I thought, oh man, I, how, why did I not realize that's what went on? But that shook my faith a little bit. How can I even trust what's in here when some dude might have been having a bad day and he had more votes than the other guy and that's why the, the Corinthians epistle is in there. And I'm going assuming that it's God speaking to me and basing my life's decisions on it. Do you know what? When you hear that, that should rock you a little bit. It's okay. God is up to holding life together for us when we ask honest questions and have reasonable doubts. An announcement, reasonable doubts are good. That should be about the hundredth time you've heard one of us say that here. Reasonable doubts, think of this. Reasonable doubts when you read theology, and when you, especially in the, as quickly as the world is changing, are not the antithesis to solid faith. They are not the opposite of solid faith. What they are is something that uh, comes along with an active mind and a brain that thinks. Reasonable doubts. What if, instead of what I was raised to believe, reasonable doubts make your faith suspect? Oh, you don't want him. He doubts. You know, he doubts. He doubts uh, Romans 8.28. He sometimes actually says, oh, Art, you really believe that God came to earth in the form of a human being? What are you, nuts? He actually has thoughts like that go through his head. If you don't have thoughts like that go through your head, I'm not sure you understand what's going on here. God took on human form, human flesh, made himself human, and came and walked among us and lived a perfect life and then died and was resurrected. That's Jesus. And that I believe with all of my heart, but every once in a while my heart leaks with human doubt. It says, what are you, crazy? That's normal. Isn't that normal? Can we admit? What if reasonable doubt in the context of faith is actually a compliment to God? Where God is saying, you trust me enough to even name your doubts? Name your questions? I like that you trust me like that. Come on, let's go figure this out together. So, there's some questions that come up in Colossians. And let's look at some of them. But before we do that, let's stand and read some of it together. You stand for the reading of God's word. I'm going to read from verse 2 to verse 6 as representative of the whole chapter. And this is the word of God, where Paul gives these mandates Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains, pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward those who are outside of you. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. 
May God add his blessing to his holy word, his fully inspired message to us. Amen. Go ahead and take your seats. And I read this chapter, and I think, well, I've got, this is some interesting questions here. Let me give you some examples. Now, context. Paul is in prison when he's writing this. He has an entourage with him, bringing him food, taking care of him, uh, an amanuensis or a, uh, a, di- uh, a secretary. So Paul probably didn't write in his own hand many of these letters, especially the ones from prison. He probably uh, sat and dictated and somebody else wrote it. And then they would take, and sometimes he would say at the end of it, hey, see, I'm writing this in my own hand. See how big the letters are? And he would sign it. So it's all his words, usually by somebody else writing it. And then he would something, give me that sheet. Give me that sheet. Give me the pen. I'm going to sign this myself. And you know, Paul had something going on with his eyes. He couldn't see that well. And he would sign it and he would mention how big the letters are. This is Paul. Paul did not ever meet the people in the Colossian church. He didn't go to Colossae and launch that church. It was started through someone he influenced. And so he's got such authority with these folks that even though they had never met him, they read his letter that he writes from prison, a place of weakness and bondage, and they still want to obey what he says and learn from what he says. Sometimes Paul is writing specifics in these letters, these epistles, whether Colossians or Philippians or Ephesians, they're all epistles to churches in towns. Uh, he's writing them sometimes in response to reports or specific questions that a representative brought to him. Hey, Paul, here's what's going on in Colossae. We've got this thing. We've got these people teaching this or that. We've got people asking about this or that. What should we do? What do you say? Guide us. And so you see sort of the staccato effect in these letters. Now, as to this, I say this. As to this, I say this. He was probably responding specifically to questions or had a letter from them in his left hand and maybe the pen in his right hand. And so he's reading the letter. They're asking questions and he's responding to each of those questions. These are some of the things that are going on that might contribute to the style of the letters. But most scholars believe Paul writes Colossians from Rome. He names some of the folks that are there with him, which actually lends itself to one of the questions that I and then he sends with an emissary, sort of, holding, someone holding the letter, and he says, here, take this to Colossae and read it there. And make sure the churches around Colossae get a copy of this too. And he say, read the letter I wrote to them too. And, and that's how this, uh, this stuff would work. And they would learn from these things. This was a, these were brand new churches with no collected Bible and they were getting their instructions from the apostles and the leaders. And they said, how do we do this? And you get letters instructing them. And we have the benefit of reading those letters here. Here are some of the questions that I see, though, when I read Colossians. And we would encourage you to study Scripture this way when you read Scripture. Here's one. Look at verse 10. There are some of those tough names. Aristarchus. Anybody want to name their kid Aristarchus? Aristarchus? Imagine the first day of school with that one. Aristarchus. Noah, aren't you glad your dad didn't name you Aristarchus? Aristarchus? You could have my Aristarchus. Get it? Sorry. I'm I'm sorry. Look at verse 10. 
Here's a question. My fellow prisoner, Aristarchus, sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. So we've heard of Mark. He wrote the Gospel of Mark. Heard of Barnabas, Paul's original missionary partner. But then there's this parenthetical statement. (coughs) Speaking of uh, uh, Mark, he says, you have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Does, does that make you say, why in the world wouldn't they welcome him? There's nobody else that's named here where Paul has to say, by the way, let him in if he knocks on the door. What's going on with that? Where did that come up? And you go back to Acts chapter 15, right around verse 36, on Paul's original missionary journey where he's teamed up with Barnabas. Mark is on the team, and you have a reference to them getting halfway through the work that they're doing, and Mark says, man, I'm tired, I wanna go home. Or I'm uncomfortable, or homesick, or whatever. But the point is, Paul and Barnabas didn't agree on how to respond to Mark when Mark wanted to go home. Paul's probably, we're guessing here, but saying, dude, you made a commitment, Follow. don't be one of those guys. I have no time for one of those guys on my team. You made a commitment, finish it, then we'll go home and rest. We learn from Colossians that Mark is the cousin of Barnabas. They're close, they're family. Barnabas sees Paul treating Mark maybe rudely, too harshly, and Paul and Barnabas get in an argument. So listen, apostles got on each other's cases, got in arguments, had disagreements, and Mark ends up saying, I quit. I'm going back, you guys do what you're gonna do. And we know that that division lasted for a little while. But apparently there was a reconciliation. Because by the time we get to Colossians, something good has happened where, uh, and the word must have leaked out. Man, whatever you do, don't trust Mark. He'll get you halfway there and then turn around and go home to mommy or whatever they were saying. Paul has to say to the Colossians, if Mark comes, never mind that stuff you've been hearing. Receive him. By the time he gets to writing his letters to Timothy, which are the, some of the latest letters in Paul's life, he actually reser- refers to Mark as, he says, send him to me. I need my brother Mark. He's a refreshment to my soul. So there's been a great reconciliation that happens. But you learn that stuff by saying, wait, what was that about in that text? Why would Mark need a special invitation and to be accepted? by the people in Colossae. That's one of the questions that comes up, and this is how you study scripture. It's okay to ask questions. Look at verse 16. This is an example of one that could really shake you. I'm not gonna unshake you, I'm just gonna introduce it to you and it probably will shake you a little bit. Look at verse 16. It says, after this letter has been read to you, see that it also is read to the church of the Laodiceans, and that you in turn, this is the part, that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Can anybody find me the book of Laodiceans? There's nothing in the Bible that's the first Laodiceans, second Laodiceans, yet the very same Bible tells us there were letters from Paul to the church in Laodicea that he wanted the church in Corinth to read. So he's, Paul ascribed equal force or power or weight to those letters that we do not have copies of 
to the, uh, as the letters that we do have a copy of the Colossians. So why is that shaky, you ask? Well, in my crazy, doubtful mind uh, gets rocked by that because I think, wait a minute, what if we find, because the canon is closed, we're not going to add to the Bible, right? What if we find the Laodicean letters next week? What if we find the other letter we also know exists because it's the same kind of reference to the Corinthian church the week after that? Should, should we then say, oh, these are, should we convene another council and say, these are letters too. They're letters from Paul. They are therefore authoritative and scriptural. And the majority church would say, no, we shouldn't. The canon is closed. Do, do you not see the logical inconsistency and threat to that question? Do you? I do. And I'm still at peace with the scripture. And I hear and serve a God who says, go ahead and ask that stuff, Greg. It's a compliment to me when you challenge me like that and recognize tilted logic and are still able to find peace and walk with faith. The main point is I came to earth in the form of a human being and died for the people I created and love. And we can change the world Stand for good again. And you can have your sin forgiven. Whether there's another letter to the Laodiceans that's going to be found next week or not. But we live in that kind of uh, hmm, gray sometimes when we ask these questions. But you've got to ask them. We are serious about not being the kind of church that says, don't ask those questions Just put them aside. Do, do not ask those questions. Mm -mm. Listen, God deserves better than that from us, doesn't he? Come on, Lord, let's take on everything. We believe you are up to the challenge. Good stuff, these questions. <laughs> Make you lose sleep at night. And then you have these two mandates, and I love what Paul writes here. I'm sorry, I didn't give you a heads up. <clears throat> Come back to verse two with me now. They were asking maybe, he heard some of what was going on from the representative from the Colossian church, but however he got there, Paul, toward the end of his letter, right before he starts saying, tell Aunt Mary hi, and you know, so-and-so sends their greetings, so it's almost as though he's saying, look, everything I've written, that's good, but get these two, will you? Because it's right at the end. Two things. He says, devote yourselves to prayer, verse 2. And then prayer is tied with watchfulness or awareness or being uh, be on your toes and thankfulness. Devote yourselves to prayer being watchful, be aware of what's going on in your culture, in your church, in your families, in your life, in your own internal struggles, and pray. And have always an attitude of thanksgiving. One of the obvious reasons to have a context or an attitude of thanksgiving is because I got someone who's listening to me when I pray. I have someone who cares enough to hear me. Man, I don't know if when I pray, God's gonna do exactly what I ask. In fact, honestly, I assume he's not going to do exactly what I ask. Because I'm not sure I always ask for the right things. But I am sure that he hears me when I pray. 
that I go, hey, here, I don't know what this is. I don't know what to do with it, but here you go, Lord. Don't let that go to your head, by the way. Here you go, Lord. It's in your lap now. Throw out the stuff that shouldn't be there at all. Embrace the stuff that should. But I can trust you, God, with what I've just talked about, what I've just seen, because I'm trying to be aware. And I'm so thankful that we're walking this deal together. And I'm walking this thing with a God who understands what it's like to be human, knows how it feels to stub your toe, to have your heart broken, to be rejected, to be loved. You know everything. You've been tempted with everything except you haven't caved into it. So you can look at us, each of us, and we pray and say, I remember that. I'm not endorsing it, but I remember the struggle. And we're thankful for that. Because we don't have a high priest, the text says, that can't identify with our frailties and our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way, yet without sin. The Bible says that. So he says, pray, devote yourselves to prayer. And that word devote has this sense of, um, it's hard to communicate what he's really getting at, but it it has a sense of be on the ready, be, be so devoted to prayer that the drop of a hat, you're just right there. Almost our first response is, to pray. It's like uh, we have, you heard about someone who was uh, flying planes in the Air Force. Uh, You were introduced to them earlier. I understand that America and probably most countries with military have planes at the ready all the time. They're always fueled, always lined up just right on the runway. And if there's ever an emergency where we need one in the air, it's not very long before we get one in the air. Always at the ready. That's kind of what this devote yourself, devote yourself to prayer is talking about. Man, I'm like right there ready to burst into prayer any minute. Stay with the idea of prayer. Why is that so difficult? You know, sometimes when I have an extended time of prayer, it's rich, it felt good, it was wonderful, The, the, the hour felt like five minutes. Yet, every time I come back to pray again, I think, ah, man, oh, come on, man. Let's check my email. Most times when I experience something that's delightful, I can't wait for the next chance to experience it. But in my life anyway, I don't find that's the case with prayer. I find that every time I go to prayer, it's an uphill climb. Even if the last time was really wonderful. Now some of you have gifts that that's not the case for you. It is the deal for me. We need a challenge that says devote yourself to prayer. Don't give up on this practice. One of the reasons I find it so difficult is I don't, I don't get it. I don't get the theology of it. Look, God, are you waiting around for us to get 15 or 20 people who are praying? What, do you need 23 before you, that's sort of the tipping point? When 23 people start praying, then you'll do this, but if 22 prayed, you won't? Or if we didn't finish it by saying in Jesus' name, oh no, we just screwed up the whole thing because we didn't pray in Jesus' What, is, what are the mechanics of prayer? How is it that human beings praying could change your mind or inspire you to do something? You're God, you're 100% good. You already care about what you want to do. And I don't have any answers for that, neither do you. We have guesses. Well, it might be that this is the case, and it might be like this is the case. There's some things I do have answers for, though. And some things I find, this is interesting, that when we pray, every time I pray for that, it happens. Like, I need patience, Lord. Could I have peace, please? 
Might I have some insight to deal with this thing that's coming up in my life? Those kinds of things, pretty consistently, eventually we receive them. Some of the other things we pray for, I don't get it. I don't know why things happen and don't happen. I love looking at what Paul did not pray for. What would you expect a person in prison with all sorts of talent and cool people around him and a great big vision for the world who's locked up and unable to meet those challenges, what would you expect would be his or her first prayer? Get me out of here. And there's no get me out of here prayer. Paul doesn't say to the church in Colossae, pray that I would be released from prison so I can come and visit you. What he prays for are things he knows are in God's will. Pray for open doors. Pray that I would speak clearly this mystery of the gospel of Christ in us, even while here in prison, to whoever comes in the room, everybody I come in contact with. Pray for strength for me and faithfulness in this particular setting. Doesn't mean we shouldn't pray for radical, crazy things. I am not saying that. We should. But Paul's challenge is devote yourselves to prayer. And then at least in this context, he gives us examples of how he wants them to pray for him. The second one, and I'm already, you're supposed to be dismissed right now, so let me just do this really quickly. (laughs) I got the power. (laughs) He says, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. That's an unfortunate translation. He's not trying to give the sense of there's us and there's everybody else. There's an insider and then you're all outside. That speaks of separation and, and a hierarchy and sort of arrogance. We're in, you're out. He's not trying to communicate that. The language fails us. The translation fails us. What he's saying, in effect, is, hey, be wise about the way you encounter and engage with folks who don't follow or believe the same things you do, who are not in this particular intellectual and spiritual fellowship. Be wise toward them. Be kind toward them. He says, be wise in the way you act toward them and make the most of every opportunity and let your conversation always be full of grace, church. Seasoned with salt. That's a picture of make a contribution that's redemptive and helpful for people. That you may know how to answer everyone. Paul's challenge here has to do with prayer and it has to do with the way we engage our community. Especially those who would see the world and faith and God and politics or whatever it might be differently than you might see it. And he's saying, your job is not to separate yourself from them. Come out from among them and be ye holy. Pray and engage. Engage them. To not be engaging our community as a Christian church is not only uh, the opposite of the model Jesus brought, but it's not biblical at all. It's the opposite of what Scripture teaches. Man, be theologically astute enough to be able to go anywhere and make a friend with anyone within reasons of safety and so on and so forth. And go and love people. Love them. And speak with kindness to them. The fact that we're tender with somebody or find something that, there's an, uh, that we can agree with them on doesn't mean we've compromised what we believe. The Christian church needs to remember that we're not primarily put here 
to nail down uh, the points about which everybody else gets things wrong. We're here to love people. And in that we have civil, reasonable, in the context of friendships, conversations about many things that we see differently, including the gospel. Well, I think you're, what do you mean? You think I have sin? Well, the way I read it, we both do. And what Jesus taught was this. That's not an assault on you uh, because you're voting this way or that way or uh, thinker pointing. Paul says the opposite. Speak with grace, gentleness, truth, and kindness. Engage people. Relate to them. And he says, be theologically astute enough to, to be able to answer any question they throw at you or they bring to you. Which means we need to be reading, studying, thinking, admitting where we're wrong or where we don't have an answer. Oh, you know what? You, you, you got a point there. I, I, can't, I can't see an answer to that one. Let's go figure it out together. That's the challenge of Scripture. So Paul's giving these mandates. Devote yourself to prayer, whether or not you understand the mechanics of prayer. Treat people right. Even when they disagree with you. Treat them like Jesus treated them when people disagreed with him. There's the model. There are some of the mandates. Pray and relate. I think I may have already used this, but forgive me if I have. It's my friend... I told you the story maybe already, I don't remember. My friend Harvey Drake was receiving a, an award that the denomination gives, he's a pastor up in Washington State. And one of the statements he made during his acceptance speech was this. He said, you can't heal what you won't touch. You can't heal what you won't touch. Paul, in effect, and that's sort of the point, What's the point? This is the point. You can't heal what you won't touch. Paul is inviting us to touch the ministries of others through prayer. Touch the people in your community through friendship, civil conversation that's seasoned and redemptive, but kind and welcoming so that you can be invited back to the conversation, not kept from the next conversation. And that's our challenge to you. Pray. Pray for us too. Connect. Your community needs you. Go love them. Let's stand and be dismissed with this blessing. <coughs> and now may God, the planter of seeds, plant this seed in the people called Marine Covenant Church. He plant the seed of theological intelligence to think and see like God does. May he plant the seed of kindness and friendship, the seed that grows to say, the fact that you have befriended somebody doesn't mean you agree with them or endorse every decision. It just means that you love them because they're human. May those seeds take root in us. And may the truth guide us as we move forward in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.